Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 36. We're still kicking. We're still here. We're still talking. Still exploring ideas in our relatively inane way. And you are, surprisingly, still listening. So thank <laughs> you for that. That's right, right. And apparently, so are you. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> I, today, we want to. what strikes us as a, an extremely important topic today, perhaps never more important in the history of maybe even the world. At least wow, in our hyperbole. time and place. Nice, hyperbole man. here. That's right. We're going to go big. We're going to go big. And I say that because you've never been able to control it in the way you could now. The way that language works, it's the way that words limit your thoughts and direct your thoughts and shape the way you see the world, really. Right, right. There's an interesting theorist named Rorty. It's something of a tribute to his name that I can't remember his first name. Just his last, Rorty. <laughs> so remarkable. He was fairly famous. Um, I don't know how many disciples of Rorty there actually are, but there are sure a lot of people who draw on his insights, and some of them were extremely interesting. And he had this theory about language that draws on things like Orwell's 1984 and a lot of other people, but he talks about how you have a vocabulary, uh, a set of words that you use with which you generally think and that your ideas are limited by those words. That those words serve some kind of purpose for you. They help you to understand and make sense of, of certain things and, and piece together things in a way that you like and that you can understand. But there are other vocabularies that might be better for different purposes. When he proposes his theory, he proposes it as a vocabulary that he wants to make as attractive to you as possible that can explain things that you currently can't explain that you then might want to adopt for that purpose. And that's that's kind of a weird place to begin because Rorty didn't believe that there's objective truth. And so what you have is you have these various vocabularies and you adopt one or another because it seems to serve you better or worse. All of that is to say that we see competing vocabularies today. Whether or not you agree with his uh, I, his rejection of truth, we don't, <laughs> and a number of other things with Rorty, that is a fascinating way to look at the current culture war, that there are certain vocabularies, and those vocabularies can address certain things better or worse, and that by adopting one, you you adopt a whole tribe with it, right? The tribalism, the two parties, the, they each have a vocabulary. And the way that politics works is you you manipulate that vocabulary. If you're a politician on the left or the right, you make sure you say the right words in that vocabulary to signal the right things, and that connects people to you and so on. And this, this idea of your words shape the way you think and limit the way you think in key ways, and that that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That can help you be more precise. It can help you be right even. But that in order to get out of that, you have to expand the meanings of the words or you have to pick up new ones. Yeah, and this is something that we've we've already touched on in the past, maybe not as explicitly. I mean, if you go all the way back to our to our episode on racism, we talk about the different definitions of racism and the new definition of racism and how that affects the way people view, you know, what we are now calling racism in the world. That in the 21st century, especially in the past few years, there's been a new vocabulary in how we discuss racism, and that vocabulary has shifted the lens of how people see racism by broadening it from individual 
acts or prejudice against minorities into a system of oppression that is built on 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 society, on systems, on historical events, and not on any individual's actions or thoughts or deeds. <laughs> right, right. You can say the police and capitalism are racist. Yeah, exactly. Regardless of the individuals in them. Mm-hmm. But that's a shift fundamentally in vocabulary. It's changing how the words work, and that over time actually changes how people see the world. And that's just one area where that's happened. You know, you got words like equality, fairness, rights, justice. These words are all thrown around on a regular basis, and what they mean has incredible significance. I mean, just last episode, we were discussing, you know, gun rights. We were discussing justice. We were discussing the principles behind a right to bear arms. And I stumbled in using the term rights because rights has so many connotations in our current culture that as soon as I started talking about rights, you all knew what I was talking about or so it, so it appeared because yes. there's a whole vocabulary that goes with that word. And so I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this rut of, of what rights means and it was hard for me to get out of there i had to find different words to fight that vocabulary because i wanted to explain an idea that was separate from that vocabulary and that's what we're talking about here there there's nothing wrong with that vocabulary that has to do with rights except in the sense that it limits my ability to think out of a particular area and that's the danger with these vocabularies is you get stuck in a vocabulary And it's going to shape how you talk about things and actually how you think about those things. And so in order to expand that, you have to expand your vocabulary and talk about things in a different way, which can be incredibly difficult. (laughs) Take it from someone who who just recently had to do that mid-episode ad lib, and it was a little bit ugly. Well, what you're saying, the way we're using the word vocabulary is obviously different than than a common usage. We're talking here the, the words that kind of make up the lens in which you see the world. And when you were talking about the, the fact that you have to shift those within your own mind to kind of think about new things and to, to engage new ideas, normally when, when you see something new, what happens is it's kind of assimilated into the terms that you already understand and the way you already look into, right? Your lens has a place for that and it just puts it in that place. But you want to avoid that. You want to try and examine these things for themselves. And the other thing I was thinking as you were talking is that this becomes a nightmare when you're talking about two different people, right? When you're trying to communicate something. Because when we say rights, I have a good idea, depending on which, which background someone is from, what comes to mind, right? Mm-hmm. When, when I'm talking to someone who is, is very liberal and I say rights, now they might be thinking, they might be assuming that I'm coming at it from the perspective of a conservative and then they've, they've pigeonholed me. They've got some sense of where I'm coming from that may or may not be accurate. And then... Or they think that I'm on, I'm with them, and I've assumed their theory of rights, which includes a number of other things that's, that's completely different. These are very different concepts, and we're trapped within this same, this same word. And so much of, of liberalism, by liberalism I mean kind of the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment, ones that you mentioned just a moment ago, Brad, the equality, rights, fairness, truth, justice, these, these kind of concepts as we know them are so fragmented at this point. There's so many, everyone has their own way of using them. 
to the point where, where even truth, which seems to be the least flexible of these, there's my truth and your truth, depending on which circle you're talking about. Despite doing, you know, making the word entirely useless, <laughs> <laughs> you know, despite turning the word into something that it even counter to what it was initially, it sees that kind of usage on a, on a regular basis. So what we'd like to do is to break down a few choice words and some of their implications and meanings to gain some better understanding, to give you the opportunity to evaluate how you use these words and how that may be influencing your ability to think outside the box and also influence your ability to communicate with someone who is using those same words in a completely different way. Because that's that's something that we see on a regular basis today. We've talked before about the two parties speaking past each other. And using two different definitions for the same word is an excellent way to be <laughs> talking about the same thing on paper and yet be talking about completely different things in reality. And, yes. And that creates a, a very powerful disconnect, which is something that we absolutely want to want to stop we want to stop that disconnect because people need to be able to communicate so we can reach some kind of understanding right especially where right now the lack of communication seems to be the norm people afraid to speak people afraid to say things people who could not sit down at the table with each other and discuss things openly and honestly and that that has to be part of the solution there's no way that you get some kind of democratic unity without that kind of communication, without frank, open communication, without the ability to come together and understand one another and then go from there. And to do that, you have to get through this issue of language. You have to get through these changes. And so as we discuss these, consider the ways in which people you disagree with might use these words. The first one we're going to get into is equality. This is one, as Brad said, we stumbled into this one the other day and I don't like the word equality because it conveys too much. First off, if you're if you're not talking politics, equality seems to be pretty clear. What things are equal, right? If I said, is this equal to this? You would have a good answer, and I think we'd be able to agree. <laughs> in most yeah, cases. Yeah. In if, in the mathematical sense, you know, yes, three three equals stuff. two plus one, most people yes. can agree on. Yes, we could get down on that, right? We could say that equality is means either the same or some kind of equivalent and thus when you're if we're talking abstractions maybe it'd be harder to come together say i think this book is equal to this book that's much more debatable question than two plus one equals three but in general the way we're using the word is at least understood right we might disagree on what is equal but we would agree on how it's supposed to be used how the word is used what about when we say all men are created equal as the declaration of independence does yeah, then it becomes a lot messier real quick. Ibram Kendi draws on equality. It's one of his fundamental principles. He believes that all men are created equal. Not cr He may or may not use the word created, but that we're all equal in some sense. And that's a fundamental basis for his assumptions that everything, every difference must be driven by racism. I think everybody on every side of the aisle agrees, might agree with the statement, are men equal? Are we equal to each other? Is every human being equal to, to the others? In, at least in some sense. I think most people would say yes. Maybe even everybody. Got to be pretty close. There probably are a few, a few straight up racists who yeah. would disagree with that and, a, and some others. But in general, in America, everyone would agree to that statement. 
but what on earth do we mean by it? <laughs> One of the interesting insights of Jordan Peterson that I think is really valuable is that as soon as you set out to do a task, you create a hierarchy of competence. So if what we want to do, uh, lately there's been, there's been plumbing issues in my house. Now, if you want to solve a plumbing problem, is everybody equal? That's ridiculous, of course. If you everyone were equal, you'd never need, you know, parent, <laughs> presumably if, if everyone's equal, you could solve all the, the plumbing problems. People are not equal along any sphere in which competence is required. If you need knowledge and skill and talent and these kind of things, if they matter at all, then no, we are obviously not equal. Yep, absolutely. And you can have all the talent in the world and not be the best basketball player if you're four feet tall. You know, it's, some of these things are entirely arbitrary. It's not just talent and skill and things. It can be external factors and it can be all kinds of things that, that affect your ability to do something and thus put you higher or lower in this hierarchy of people who can do it well. So obviously in that aspect, we are not all equal. We're definitely not equal in intelligence and equal in really any skill or talent or ability. Why on earth would we say that people are equal? Now, part of this is an old idea wrapped up in Christian thought, the idea that we are equal before God, that God is no respecter of persons, and that thus every human being is valuable in the sight of God in a kind of equivalent way. Mm -hmm. And from there, related to that, we've decided at some point that we should act like they are that way in reference to law as well. That we should treat everybody the same way with the laws. That if you commit a crime, regardless of your race, regardless of your talents, regardless of your connections to the king or to, the, or to uh, some senator, you should be punished if you broke a law. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. there should be this kind of equality. Does that have anything to do with whether people are actually equal in any sense? Not really, Dan. Not really. Indirectly it's at best? It's, it's almost a completely different concept. It is. It is a completely different concept. Which is why whenever I use equality, I hesitate because it implies so much more than what we mean. It implies, especially when you we talk in terms of race now, there's a, there's a lot of talk about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. Usually equality of outcome is talked of in terms of equity, whereas equality is usually limited to opportunity. But again, these are new spheres for the idea, none of which have, are necessarily tied to what we think of as equal. <laughs> again, we're using equal to describe the opportunities, not the people. We're using equal to describe the stuff in terms of equity, not the people. And so equality in terms of human beings, in what way is that applicable? Well, we should certainly treat them equally before the law. But why? <laughs> why? It's not because they're equal. They're not. We're, we're all incredibly different, which is why we're discussing this idea. You see how this word is, this word conveys so much more than it, than we want it to, and so much more than you can actually see. And so it has well, and, to be meant in this limited it's sense. it's interesting, Dan. Because, because you talk about equity and the idea that, that people's opportunities, at the very least, should be equal and people's outcomes probably should be equal. And I'm yeah, not saying this is what I believe. About, this, right. is how, this is how 
the idea has grown that that now it's assumed that at a bare minimum everyone's opportunity should be equal but really our outcome should be equal too and this idea strangely enough has actually stemmed from our vocabulary we have been talking about equality for so long that people should be equal that people are like, well, then let's make them equal. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. If, if we're saying people should be yeah. equal, if if people should be equal, like three equals two plus one, then if one person's three and one person's two, then we got to add one to that person who's two so that they can be equal with the other person. And that's where you get into this modern usage of the, of the word equity, which is the idea that we rectify those differences. You know what I mean? If you are naturally a faster runner, than I am, then I should get a handicap so that we are on equal footing. If you're taller than me and we're playing basketball, then then something should be done to equalize that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Either benefit to the person who has some who isn't as good at it, or some penalty to the people who are better. And if you're born in a wealthy family and I'm born in a poor family, then then I should receive an economic handicap so that we can be on the same playing field at the bare minimum so that we have the same opportunities. But in terms of equity, if we want to have the same outcomes, now you have to account not just for physical limitations, but also for for things like natural ability, um, drive, you know, their actual ambition, whether or not they want to accomplish it, and all of these other factors, which can turn into a lot. And so for someone who's who's looking at equality in the sense of we should be equal before the law, talking to someone who's thinking of equality as equality of outcomes, there's obviously going to be a disconnect in not just their ability to communicate, but also in how they see the world in regards to to this issue. Yeah, I think, I think that's really clever. I liked what you said about the idea that maybe the word is driving the philosophy. You've got to think that it I is. Absolutely, at this point. think it is the way the way that you could talk about equality so long, and that it could kind of evolve. That 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 then drives the way that people think, it, and eventually you get further and further down this field where more and more things are made equal that obviously aren't. But there, but equality becomes the desirable end in all these different spheres because men are equal, but they're not. They're not. <laughs> We're not an equal in any sense, other than I mean, we're the same species. Does that <laughs> does that create some kind of moral imperative? So the interesting thing about this is that while we do completely agree that people should be treated equal before the law, the evolutions of the idea as it's come about seem to be based on the word itself and the claim that equality is good, as Brad was saying. And, it- and I, I would like to throw out one more thing about equality, and that is that the argument that the end goal should be equality is fundamentally flawed because equality is not inherently a good thing for so many reasons, Dan. The primary reason being that equality, as as we said before when we're talking about it mathematically, means sameness. You know what I mean? That when you have three and you have two plus one, what you really have is the same thing. You know, there really is no difference between three and two plus one. They're the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. And that if you want true equality for human beings, the only way to do that 
true equality in, in these newer uses of the word, which are a more accurate usage of the word, by the way, which is why we think that, that the, the word has driven this change. But true equality would be awful, would be absolutely awful, because we would have to all be the same in order for that to work. I don't even know what that would look like, Dan. I'm trying to imagine what true equality would look like <laughs> be- between individuals. It just doesn't make sense because so much of life comes from our ability to choose what we want to pursue, what we care about, what part of ourselves we want to grow, and what part of ourselves we want to ignore that shapes us into truly unique individuals. And as soon as we become unique, we become different from everyone else. And we're no longer equal to them, yeah. really, in any sense of the word. And in order for us to all be equal, we have to lose what makes us unique. You're absolutely right. A child is limitless potential. And that's what makes them exciting, right? You look at a child and you go, "This, you could do anything with your life, is the, the common phrase. They inspire this uh-huh. vision of potential. But at some point, they have to do something. And by doing something, they're not doing others. They have to, if they want to be B, actually realize that potential in any area, they have to sacrifice the other areas. If I'm going to spend my time doing X, I can't spend that same time doing Y and Z. It's just the nature of reality that you, to become something, you have to walk out of that room of limitless potential, the room where every door is available to you, and step into one of them and close other doors. I've always thought that image was a useful, you know, it's a useful image in terms of psychologically of growing up. That's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're, you're moving from a, a child who could be interested in everything and enjoy everything to having to actually do something. And then by doing that, you're, you lose other opportunities. And that's, it's a sacrifice and it's a cost, but it's also beautiful because then you, as you said, you, you can become something and you want to become something, <laughs> something that's of benefit <laughs> to others and that can be, can do good things. And that's, and that hinges on your choices and certainly on your opportunities. Like, I'm sure a lot of people are hearing this being like, kids aren't at limitless potential. Some of them lack the talent to do certain things. Yes, of course. And some of them, and some of them lack the, the wealth to have certain opportunities. But the point is the potential of childhood has to become something. And in becoming something, it loses the possibility of becoming other things. As you were talking, I think that one of the most interesting things about equality before the law, this idea that justice should be blind, I think is, is another way to get to the same idea. The question should be, did you do this thing that was unjust? Not, did you do this thing that was unjust, but do you also have friends in high places? <laughs> but that is, that, those things are unrelated. Justice should be looking at the one thing and it should be blind to everything else. The color of your skin, the all these other things. But at some point, I think that we accepted as a society that justice shouldn't be blind because some of those kids simply had worse opportunities and thus can't meet the same expectations and it would be unfair to punish them for the circumstantial effects on their life that you have these things in life that are unfair and so equality before the law actually hurts all kinds of people who didn't have the same opportunities And so equality before the law becomes this antiquated idea where you believed that everybody could actually take responsibility for themselves, and they can't. And so instead, what you need is some new idea that proposes another kind of equality. And the two are mutually exclusive. I don't think you can have a concept of equality before the law 
and a concept of, well, the law needs to come into all these places and, and lift all these people up and do all these things, right? It's, it, these things are, seem to be at least in tension with each other. Yeah, which brings us to another handful of words that we want to discuss that are all interconnected. And the easiest way to describe them is as the words that underlie the vocabulary of the American dream. People talk about capitalism and they talk about meritocracy are two of the most common words that we want to take a look at. But they all stem from this idea of the American dream, that here we have freedom and that freedom allows you to succeed or fail entirely based on your actions. If you work hard, you can make it. If you work hard, you will succeed. Life is what you make it. All of these ideas are based on, on this vocabulary, and they're based on this idea of a meritocracy, that people will succeed or fail based off of their merit, their talents and abilities. And this is another idea that has a, a long and rich history in the United States. It's something it that really everyone's familiar with. It's an underlying principle. For example, it's something that has made its way into every aspect of society. In 1989, the famous article on white privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, the author talks about meritocracy. After she lists her, uh, her long list of, of things that indicate white privilege, she says, I repeatedly forgot each of the realizations on this list until I wrote it down. For me, white privilege has turned out to be an elusive and fugitive subject. The pressure to avoid it is great. For in facing it, I must give up the myth of meritocracy. If these things are true, this is not such a free country. One's life is not what one makes it. Many doors open for certain people through no virtues of their own. And she's absolutely right. That is what we fundamentally believe. We fundamentally believe that, first of all, that capitalism and meritocracy are the same. You know, they're synonymous. This free country is free, and because of that, it's a meritocracy. And of course, this idea is based on history once again, as people came to the United States from Europe, where classism was alive and well, where who you are and who you know and who your parents were, were the primary determining factors for whether or not you would succeed in life. That what you did and how good you were at what you did really had very little impact on whether or not you would be successful. And then people came to the United States and had this opportunity, this unique opportunity at the time, to decide for themselves who they were going to be and who, to a very large degree, were able to make the most of it. You know, that whether or not they succeeded to a large degree was entirely up to them which, as we said, is, was somewhat unique. And when you're hacking it out alone in the wilderness, there, <laughs> there really isn't anyone else to blame. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's absolutely right. In, a, in some senses, nature is a meritocracy, or at least as close as you can get to it. But in reality, there is no such thing as a meritocracy. You know, the idea that how far you succeed is 100% up to who you are and, and how talented you are and how much you push yourself and how hard you work 
really is fictional. Because even in that state of nature where it's just you against nature and whether or not you succeed is entirely up to you, if a freak storm comes in and destroys your crop and yet you've got a neighbor or someone who's on the other side of the valley whose crop doesn't get destroyed just because they happen to be lucky, does that mean that it's no longer a meritocracy? <laughs> it starts to raise some questions because that's not like in that scenario you have some some government deciding who wins and who loses. Or even it's any just, other human being involved, yeah. Yeah, it's just the realities of life. You know, the misfortunes of weather are such a real aspect of life that we forget about on a regular basis. Another good example would be the person susceptible to disease. Right? They just yeah. get sick a yeah. lot. Physical limitations. Another one is in today's modern age, even if you have a completely free society, what if you're born in the city versus someone who's born in a rural area where there are far fewer opportunities? Is that a meritocracy or is that something else? What if someone is born to parents who take the time to educate them versus parents who don't? And I'm not just ta I'm not talking wealth. I'm talking specifically two sets of parents who are both working the same exact jobs and one set is teaching their children and the other set of parents doesn't care as much even though those parents are the same exact you know socioeconomic status and yet those kids are getting an advantage versus the other set of kids in fact a great case study in this is plato's republic you know if you have a chance you can go and read it it's it's very long and in this plato describes this utopian republic where the leaders of this republic are going to be raised in such a way that they all get the same opportunities. They're not going to be raised by parents. They're going to be raised communally. And there are all these steps put in place to make sure that it's truly equal for these kids so that it can be a true meritocracy. And then as they rise up based off of their own talents and abilities, then the one who rises up the farthest can actually become the leader. Right. The end goal is to have the wisest person actually be in charge. Actually be running the government, which is what Plato's Republic is about. And a lot of people read Plato's Republic and they don't pick up on the fact that Plato does not think this is a good system. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that in many ways he's being sarcastic. Yeah, this is a fun debate among scholars. I'm 100% with Brad here. Plato is not endorsing this system. Yes, yes. People will argue this point. People will say, no, Plato is, says the system's good. That's stupid. <laughs> you really think Plato is that much of an idiot? But then I forget that so many scholars are equally stupid. <laughs> that, that we have had scholars who are operating in these bubbles of intellectual thought without ever stepping out beyond it, that you get stuck in these ways of thinking that you don't even notice how insane your arguments are. <laughs> Shots fired. Shots fired. If you have a professor who's like, oh yeah, Plato's Republic is amazing. His Republic that he's envisioned is incredible. We should do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that professor has lost touch with reality. And Plato. And Plato. Well, Plato is part of reality. <laughs> <laughs> hate to break it to you, Dan. <laughs> I concur. I love Plato. But anyways, I bring this up because that is the closest thing I've seen to a true meritocracy. And the guy who's creating it doesn't even believe in it because it's inherently 
impossible, truly. That the, the, the more you try to make everything an equal playing field so that people can just rise up based off of their own merit, the more impossible it becomes. So that brings us back to meritocracy as capitalism, capitalism as meritocracy, the American dream as being the ultimate goal. The American dream, when it was first envisioned, was not a dream in a meritocracy. The American dream was a dream of a life that was free of force that was stopping us from succeeding. People came from Europe where they were physically stopped from succeeding, where there were artificial barriers left and right that kept them in their place. And they finally came to a system where there weren't those artificial barriers. Yes, there were very real and physical barriers <laughs> left and right. Yeah, there are. You know, Try sailing across the ocean at that time. Yeah, I mean, just the diseases alone that you could get hit with. And then you come to this big overcrowded city where there's poverty and abundance and there's many, many competitors to whatever particular field you happen to want to pursue. That doesn't sound easy at all. I mean, which is why so many of these immigrants worked insane hours early on. You know, you would have families, I've mentioned this before, where the mother, the father, and the children were all working in their own family business and working, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks, which means that for one household, you had upwards of 200 man hours put into labor. Compare that with a family today <laughs> where each parent is working a full-time job. We're talking just 80 hours. That's it. My kids are going to do more chores. No, no, I'm serious though. It's it's a completely different worldview from what we have today. To conflate that with what we're talking about now with the American dream is, is really right. quite different. What we're talking about now when people talk about the American dream is that I should be able to go to high school. I should be able to go to college, whether or not I can afford it. And then I should be able to go from there and work any job I want and make as much money as I want. And that is simply ludicrous, really. It is. It's, it's in defiance of, of nature. Of reality. Not of the structure of the government and the laws. It's in defiance of nature. As you were saying, these things are not equal. And to treat them as such will have disastrous consequences because they don't all provide the same benefits. They don't all do the same things. I, I, one of the interesting ideas, I think, is the, to recognize, as you pointed out, that our questions, that these questions were not seriously asked until there was a certain level of prosperity. Because your day was pretty much scheduled for you. You did what you had to do to continue to eat and to live. Mm -hmm. And then if you had extra time, you did, you enjoyed that extra time. You had a, a few, a little bit of leisure, maybe during, depending on the season, if you were farming, you might have more leisure than other times. An American farmer was a was a very incredible position to have because of the amount of leisure time they had. Yeah. If you did it well, you worked hard during the right seasons and no freak storms, no, you know, things worked out fairly well. Nature was kind. You actually could spend time during the winter doing the things you wanted to, which included things like improving your house, building things, you know, things that we would consider work today. You know, it's funny you should mention that, Dan, because I've heard many different theories about why, in general, Asians do better in, in school, particularly math, but in school in general, mm -hmm. Asian kids do better than American kids, right? 
both in Asia and here in the United States. There have been questions raised about why that is culturally. You know, what is it culturally that's that's created yes. this shift? And I heard a theory once that I thought was incredibly interesting. And they said, you know, that there's a number of factors, but one of the earliest factors that led to this is the growing season for the different types of crops that that an American farmer who's growing wheat or whatever works a certain number of hours a year and they have a large amount of downtime in the winter and then in the summer there's only so much they have to do and then they have intensive planting and harvesting seasons where they have to work really hard in spring and fall and that has shaped how Americans like to work. And then, of course, how they work has shaped how they like to study. Because, you know, the parents are the ones who are having the kids study. You know, especially when you go back and you look at when school wasn't a government function and was really up to the parents and the parents were organizing and et cetera, et cetera. Then you cut to rice patties in Asia. Rice patties are much more time intensive. They have a much longer growing season, and even during the summer when they're just growing, the rice paddies have to be maintained every single day, and it's a much more intensive process. And if you look at the number of hours that a rice farmer has to work per year versus an American farmer at the same time historically, the number of hours that that rice farmer had to work was way, way higher. And they simply had to work more. They had to spend more time working than the average American did. And it shaped how they educated. Shaped everything, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, shaped, it, it shaped every aspect of their life because life was just about work. And in America, for a long time now, not just the past five or ten years, but for a long time now, the working class has been a class that's had a lot of leisure time. You know, the 40-hour work week... If you think about it in terms of the number hours, a number of hours that you're awake every day is only a fraction of it. You know, the majority of the time that you're awake, you're not working. I work a 40-hour work week. I also do this podcast and I do many other things that I'm able to do because yes. of the leisure time that I have with the 40-hour work week. Yes, it, we we really have little concept of how prosperous we are compared to other people historically. It occurs to me that one of the things, one of the problems with conversations that we have today about wealth and things in society is that we don't recognize who the enemy is. And part of this is because of the a number of terrible and demonstrably false economic ideas from Marx that suggest that it's you against me in terms of economics. I thought it was me against you. Oh, maybe, maybe that's how he put it. <laughs> I guess it depends on which class you and I fit into economically. <laughs> The if you're the lower class, then yes, I'm not. But I'm <laughs> this point. I think think it's irrelevant. Sorry, sorry, I I, de I derailed you for no reason. Continue. But it's not. It's not you against them. It's you against nature. And the more you can get out of nature and offer to your fellow man, the better off you are. And one of the things that. If you reframe the American dream, which said something like, "If you come and you work hard, you'll succeed." And people go, well, I worked hard and I'm working 50 hours, 60 hour weeks to make ends meet. Or I'm not even making ends meet, right? They have health issues and things. They didn't succeed. But success, we always use, speak of success in terms of relative success. Yeah. Succeeding is doing better than everyone else. 
or doing better than the people you know are doing or getting past a certain threshold in relative wealth. And if that's your measure for success, then you're hitting a moving target that only a certain percentage of the population can actually meet. And if there happens to be more people who work hard than that, then you know it doesn't fit. And, and again, as we said, nature is such that, that there are so many variables outside of the things that you control things like the family you're born into, uh, your race in, in cases where there is racism and all these other things come in here and, and are at play. Now, no doubt, if you work hard, you will do better than if you don't work hard. That's for sure. And if you, if you, you know, you make wise decisions, you will get further with what you have than if you make unwise decisions and you don't work hard, which puts us into a much more nuanced view of the American dream. What are you trying to succeed against? I think you're trying to succeed against nature. I really like where you're going with this, Dan, because in terms of, of meritocracy and how people are viewing the world today, the way they look at it is if you have wealthy parents, you have an unearned advantage, an advantage that you didn't earn, but your parents earned. And that is, that is absolutely true. But really, and, and what you're hitting on here, Dan, is that we all have an unearned advantage. What we should come into when we come into the world is us versus nature with no tools, no resources, or anything. Because we haven't earned them. We have not earned anything, right? When we're right. first born. Right. We have literally earned nothing. There's nothing we've done that makes us deserve anything at all. And so we all come into this world with incredible unearned advantages that range in scope from from the least to the most, you know, from someone who comes into desperate poverty to someone who who's who's born to to Jeff Bezos's family. Bezos's, I hate hate people's names that <laughs> the, 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 that don't neatly the, become uh, possessive. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. I've never been good at grammar, <laughs> but none of these people deserve it. And so you do have, but you absolutely do have unequality in what we're getting. You know, we are not getting an equal footing. Absolutely. The opportunities that I have are not the same as the opportunities that you have, Dan, or that someone else has. And, and that means that we truly don't have a meritocracy. The question then becomes, is that okay? I want to touch back on white privilege, that essay, because this essay is so fundamental in framing how people see see race, which has become one of the new classism battlegrounds in these culture wars. And, and it's so interesting because she she calls white privilege, you know, really this invisible knapsack, right? It's even in the title, you know, unpacking the invisible knapsack of all these advantages that white people have without realizing it, right? And then she goes on to say that this white privilege, for this reason, the word privilege now seems to me misleading. And I'm like, okay, we'll rewrite the essay. Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> it's, it's not free form here. We can change it. <laughs> we usually think it. of privilege as being a favored state, whether earned or conferred by birth or luck. Yes, some of the conditions I have described here work to systematically over-empower certain groups. Such privilege simply confers dominance because of one's race or sex. And then earlier she mentions, talking about white privilege, 
After I realized the extent to which men work from a base of unacknowledged privilege, I understood that much of their oppressiveness was unconscious. And she goes on to talk about how she realized that her oppression of minorities was unconscious because of her white privilege. And so what's happening here in this essay is she's saying white people have more opportunities and advantages as a general group than minorities. And I actually agree with that. In general, if you take a look at these groups as they are right now, at least in the United States, white people in general have more opportunities than, than let's say, specifically black people. If you just say minorities, it becomes a little more obfuscated. Right, because you'd say the opposite if you were talking Asians, yeah. Because she then follows that up with, therefore, white people are oppressing black people and white people are dominating black people. And I couldn't figure out how you go from one to the other. And I, I, it didn't make any sense, right? How can me having more than you, by definition, mean that I'm oppressing you? Right. And I realized it's because she's fundamentally accepted the Marxist principle, which is that it's a finite pie, and that if you have it, I can't have it. That when Elon Musk created Tesla... He stole from me and he stole from you and he stole from everyone else in the world. And the only thing that's just is for him to give some of it back. If you're born into a wealthy family and I'm born into a poor family, you've stolen from me. You've stolen opportunity from me. And that's what's happening on a racial level is, is her argument and the argument that has become mainstream today. Really, the arguments for classism and racism are very closely tied together, and it's the argument that's based on meritocracy and based on equality, which is that we have to be the same in order for it to be just. Which is so interesting, because I, you and I are different in a variety of ways. You're better than Thank me at certain noticing. things. I'm better than you at everything else. Just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> And and we're equally good at nothing. And we're equally good at nothing, which is an amazing, amazing talent. And <laughs> I would not begin to say that because you are physically bigger and stronger, that you are oppressing me, even though that does, in fact, convert into more into you being economically more capable in some spheres. It's true. You did struggle when you worked at my warehouse. <laughs> I did. I did. Let's just say that. If I were 40 pounds heavier, that would help a lot in trying to tip a fridge over. <sighs> I still remember the first day you were loading and, and I was like, yeah, it's really not that bad. And you just looked like you were going to die. You looked so like I, done. A lot, I'm not like uh, a tiny person. You're, you're, but, you're basically a tiny person, Dan. I hate to break but it But I you. am very light. With how scrawny you are, you're, you're wasting away. Anyway, I'm going to edit that out there. <laughs> Cut, insult me on this. Just <laughs> and if you were to say that everybody of a specific race had some opportunity of some kind that everyone else of every other race, even if it were legally put in place, would I describe that as oppression? I would certainly describe a legal mechanism stopping people from doing something as oppression. Well, and, and Dan, that, that's a good point because what happens here when you change the vocabulary is you obfuscate the real issues. You know, when you say that everyone who's wealthy is oppressing everyone who's poor, you make it very difficult to find out who is actually oppressing because there are some people who and are how? wealthy 
who have become wealthy through nefarious purposes, who have done it by oppressing others, by stealing from people in many different ways. But instead of looking for those people who have actually oppressed, kind of like with racism, instead of looking at those people who are actually oppressing minorities, who are actually asserting dominance over minorities, who are actually creating systemic racism through whatever institutions they're working within, instead of looking at those individuals and doing something about it, you say everyone who's in this group, everyone who's in this class is oppressing the other class, which is a classic Marxist idea. You stop looking for the individual instances because they no longer matter. All that matters is the classes. Yeah. 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 You start to lose, lose track of individuals. And with that, you lose track of justice, frankly. If people are capable of, if I am born, we'll say, we'll say that uh, my parents were extremely wealthy and they had this mansion. I'm born into this mansion I'm, and they pay for a tutor. They pay for all these things. They have all these connections. I could sit around and do nothing and have a great deal of wealth for the rest of my life, be able to enjoy all of the, all of the privileges of the highest, the highest things in life. How have I wronged you? If the only thing you can point to is that you didn't have those things, where is the injustice? Where is the the thing here that says, stop, something has happened that should not have happened, that was immoral, and that requires force to correct? Where is it? Because if all you can come up with is that, well, now what needs to happen is there needs to be some kind of redistribution. You can't show, if you can't show me the injustice, if you can't show me the place where something was wrong, where something evil happened Mm -hmm. that should have been prevented, even if it took violence to do it, then then we may be looking at nature. We may be looking at just the way the world is, rather than something that governments and the force of violence should be intervening on. You know, and I feel like you've hit on another idea there, Dan, that I'd love to address. And that's the idea of talking about individuals or talking about society. Those are another set of words we were going to talk about in a slightly different light. Yeah, especially individualism. You've heard us complain about the word society. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's for this reason exactly, because when you talk about generalities, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to say that the rich have gotten rich through unjust means, you know, that the rich are rich and that's unjust. And therefore, their money should be redistributed to the poor. Yeah, I wish they were saying what you first said, that the rich are rich and because, because they, they did, did something, something unjust. No. We could, you could fix that. Yeah, no, yeah. but they're saying that it's unjust because they're so rich. You know, with Biden saying, I will not tax anyone who makes less than $400,000 a year. His argument is basically that if you're making over $400,000 a year, you really have too much money. That no one should have that much money. And that it's unjust, and that's why it's it's perfectly fine for him to take that money. Because clearly he thinks it would be wrong to take that money from people who make less. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So there there is some moral principle. There's a moral here principle somewhere. here that, that he thinks it would be that wrong. Taxation there. is not inherently great. Otherwise, you just tax everyone. That he is hurting these people by taxing them. He understands that. And so so why is it just for those who make over four hundred thousand? It's because It's more money than anyone needs. It's that Marxist idea again, and therefore it's unjust for them to have so much money. When you think about it in the broad sense, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But then you hear about, you know, if you look at one individual who 
it's actually making over $400,000 a year and how they made that much money and the work that they did and the value they created for society, then it becomes a lot harder to justify it. Let's just look at Jeff Bezos for a sec. There are many things that are involved in the legal system that, that complicate this issue. But at the very least, Jeff Bezos created something that has made our lives easier and better. Otherwise, we wouldn't be using Amazon. Amazon has definitely made my life better. And that's real value that Jeff Bezos has created for me. Yes. And in exchange for that value, I've given Amazon my money, some of which has gone to Jeff Bezos. Where is the injustice in that transaction? Because if it was unjust, shouldn't I have refused to purchase from Amazon? But if I was okay purchasing from Amazon, if I was okay giving giving Jeff my money, why do I now insist that I need it back? Yeah. And I like how I'm on first name basis with him. But that's that's <laughs> yeah. yes. I've I've purchased enough from tight. Amazon that that's how we talk. You know, you know I I call my <laughs> orders up to him personally. <laughs> I'm starting to feel that way, especially with this COVID, with the pandemic stuff. And like, I go shop for something in person these days, and I'm like, this is a terrible experience. Why am I here? I bet this is on Amazon. And he's made a lot of money in the past year that people are very upset about, but they're not upset about the fact that in our time of need, Amazon has stepped up, you know what I mean? And has delivered services that others could not with the same level of convenience, the same level of protection for those who are worried about COVID. You know, there are all these things that we don't look at when we look at yes. society as a whole, instead of looking at the individual, at an individual <laughs> instance of what's happening. I love that. The the idea that like, if you want that money back, is it because you regret what you got? If you went back in time and you were going to order that product off of Amazon, have you changed your mind? You actually don't want it? No, oh, you because want to keep that Because their return policy product. is pretty good. <laughs> it's amazing. But if you want to keep that, you know, going back, looking, knowing what you know now, you would have still bought that item. But you want the government to then take that money and give it back to you through some other means? As Brad said, there doesn't appear to be some kind of injustice in this exchange. It was perfectly willing. Tax law and all these other things are another question. And we certainly find millions of issues, perhaps even millions of issues in the tax code. I'll say, wow. What is that? There's like 70,000 pages. How many does that have to be per page? 10? There there may be a million issues, Dan, but we're never going to find them. (laughs) We're never going to read. I'm not reading Your assumption that you found millions of issues is really (laughs) impressive that you've spent that kind of time. I I don't know why millions is my default big number, but it it was too high here. After I find about four issues, I'm done. I'm like, that's too many. So there are a lot of issues with the laws and things about it. But in terms of the actual exchange there, and and what is it that you're dissatisfied with? And if there is, why did you buy it? Or just don't buy from it again. You know, go give them a a mean review. (laughs) When you're looking at individuals, you can talk about justice. When you're looking at what somebody did and why they did it and what their background is, you can even make allowances. You can structure a justice system better than ours that can take into account circumstances in ways that ours doesn't. That can take into account the whole picture, which is what restorative justice attempts to do. Mm -hmm. But when you look at a group, what is group justice? What is social justice? That's the term for it. It immediately stops resembling justice. There's There's a great phrase, indiscriminate justice, that cracks me up to no end. The idea that you're, you are going to deliver some justice, but it's going to be indiscriminate. You're not, you're not particularly concerned with who's on the receiving end of the justice. 
At which point it's not justice, which is what makes the words funny. There are days where yeah. you're angry, right, at the world. You feel like someone's wrong. Someone's wronged you, and you just want to let somebody have it. This is indiscriminate justice. And of course, it's not justice because justice must be discriminate in that it has to apply to the people who did the wrong thing. And if you're looking at social justice across classes, what original sin are you punishing them for? Yeah, and that's an excellent point, Dan, because fundamentally, classism, whether it's traditional wealth classism or the new racial classism, is never going to be just because you're trying to execute justice on an entire group of people. You know, it would be like if there were a murder in a neighborhood and they cordoned off the neighborhood as soon as it happened, right? And so they stopped, you know, a hundred people in that neighborhood from getting out and they know one of those hundred people is guilty. And they say, we know some of you, at least one of you is guilty. So we're going to sentence you all to life in prison. It's group justice, right? There would be no justice in that because you would have 99 innocents or however many innocents who are sentenced without any evidence against them simply because they're in the same group as the one who committed the crime. And that's what you have when you have class or racial justice. You say, we're going to punish everyone who's making more than $400,000 a year. Because we think some of them have gotten their money incorrectly or because we think that them owning money in general is stealing it from individuals. That's not how justice works. You can only have justice for individuals. You cannot have justice on a group scale. And that's why we talk about individuals so much and try and bring it back to individuals and try and break it down as much as possible. Because the larger you make it, the harder it is for there to actually be justice. Right, and you have to resort to utilitarianism at that point. Yeah. Because you don't have access to all the things that make up justice and a good life and you know, choice and these other, these other things that are critical for analyzing these problems. Yeah, you start looking at statistics and averages and you say, what's the average guilt of these hundred people? You know, what's the average, the average worth of these hundred people? You know, what's the average anything? And it becomes incredibly unjust for the actual people, for the individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, it may be just for the group, you know, on a theoretical scale, you know, on a mathematical scale, if you're just looking at numbers, but people are not numbers and treating them as such results in injustice. As we get to the end of this episode, I'm going to level with you guys. This is not exactly where I thought this episode was going to go. And as we got talking about it, we realized that, that, so many of these of these words that we're talking about, the equality and equity, meritocracy and capitalism, individualism and society, they're all built around one new set of vocabulary. It doesn't have a name necessarily. It doesn't have a group that supports it. But it is the mainstream way of viewing the world now through these new lenses of of new equality, which means true equality of opportunities and outcomes, of meritocracy that because we're all equal and we should be on an equal playing field, we cannot have any disparities whatsoever, whether they're natural or based off of ancestors or based off of where you live or anything else. All of those disparities need to be done away with. And these ideas of looking at the world through classes and through groups instead of looking at individuals, it's all really just Marxism in new packaging. 
It really is in a strange way. It, you wouldn't think it looking at the race stuff, but it it's is. It's not all communism. Like it's not communism is not the solution here, but Marx's fundamental ideas, not his solutions, but his ideas about how to see the world have been adopted on a widespread level. How the majority of people view the world is through Karl Marx's lens. And that's crazy. And that's crazy, crazy that those ideas are the ones that have won. And it helps it helps me understand why so many ideas are so, so incredibly popular. Why Joe Biden can say, I'm only going to tax people who make more than 400000 and then everyone's like, fantastic, done. Done deal. We don't even care what you tax them, as long as it's only those who make more than that amount. You know, no questions asked. Because we've accepted these fundamental ideas. We've accepted this new vocabulary, this this really inherently Marxist vocabulary that is based off of these ideas. And it's just, it's completely changed not just how we see the world, but what everyone expects. What everyone expects from the government, what everyone expects from each other, and what everyone looks for in terms of solutions. And what is lost in that is individualism and individual justice. I've been reading the Odyssey lately for the, I don't know how many times I've read it. I've read it several times now. And the book ends, spoiler alert, (laughs) (laughs) with Odysseus coming home to find rampant injustice at his house. Basically, his his entire island of people has left his family in a terrible strait and they're being taken advantage of. And he comes home and he cleans house and Kills everybody. Everybody there dies a horrible death, (laughs) which is not the point of where I'm going here. Are you sure this is a Greek story? (laughs) But one of the things that struck me as I was reading this time was that what's beautiful about this story is that this is justice for him and for his family, despite society, against society even, who have allowed them and who have endorsed them and who are even supporting them in some ways, at least by not doing anything about these, these people that are in his house all the time. And that That is a remarkable idea that one person who has done no wrong cannot be crucified by a mob, cannot be killed by everybody because they said so or because he's part of some group or anything like that, that this, that one person can resist the world if his cause is just. And I still think that is one of the greatest ideas of all time and one that we are sacrificing on this altar here, that by discarding equality before the law, And by looking at social groups and thinking in terms of social justice, we are sacrificing innocent people who have done no wrong and who could look at us and say, why, why don't you leave us alone? Justly say that. Why, why do you get to come into my life and do all these things when I have harmed no one and am in fact often benefiting lots of people? And we do that at our own peril. I don't think society can last having rejected that. I think we spiral. Yeah. I think we inevitably spiral if, if we get too far from that. We haven't fully rejected it. We haven't consciously rejected it at this point. But the ideas that are becoming popular stand at odds against that standard. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 36 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Our website is rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps. See you next week.